0: I say,
1: everything's going to be alright. I say, everything's going to be alright. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, April 15th, 2016. This week is episode 410. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is our engineer, John. you got to have faith. The Z-Man is traveling back from Texas today, so he will not be able to join us, but he'll listen over the weekend and write the blog. We've got Dr. Bill Vaughn on the show today. We're going to talk a little bit about mold assessment and remediation techniques. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
2: John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. That's johndon.com. Clean Facts,
1: the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net.
1: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
2: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: Okay, and last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Okay, I'm going to handle the trivia question today since the Z-Man's on the road. can win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first to correctly answer our IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can email it to let's use joe.hughes at training.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer on your computer. Congratulations. To... John Lapotere, Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida. He had the first correct answer to last week's IAQ radio trivia question. This week's question, Friday, April 15, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas LLC, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions for odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. So now for this week's question, according to the ANSI IIC, CRC-S520 Standard and Reference Guide for Professional Mold Remediation. What are the definitions of Condition 1, Condition 2, and Condition 3? All right, let's uh, get the intro here for our guest this week. We've got Dr. Bill Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn is President and Principal Scientist for NOSET Environmental Services on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Nauset provides IAQ consulting to residential and commercial clients throughout southern New England. Dr. Vaughn has worked in the area of air quality investigations since the late 1960s, with a focus on IAQ issues for the last 15 to 20 years. He and his staff have carried out investigations at over 3,000 locations in New England since starting the company. We've got some music for Dr. Vaughn. Growing more. It's a classic there. Hello, Dr. Vaughn, do we have you on the line? I am present and glad to be with you. Sir. It's great to have you. Um, you know, I didn't mention you've got a degree in biophysics from the University of Illinois. That's your PhD. And you you got a long history in, in air quality issues, both outdoor and indoor air quality. When did you first become focused on indoor environments as opposed to the greater outdoor environment?
0: I got involved with that in really the late 80s, early 90s, as um, uh, we phased out of doing. I mean, we phased into doing indoor air quality because we had been measuring vapors in the soil at uh, at spill sites, and and then we realized that we could make uh, measurements in the indoor environment at lower levels than the industrial hygienists because their techniques were. uh, were not as sensitive as needed for the residences,
1: and so you, you started doing. I guess in the eighties, in the late eighties, early nineties. What was your experience with mold work? Was it done, kind of um, just as an afterthought, or was there more uh, thought put into it than maybe I realize?
0: Well, uh, it's a little hard to say going back that far into the deep memory. Uh, we did get calls about uh, mold growth, etc. One that rem- I'm reminded of is a 12-story building around Christmas time many years ago in the early 90s that had a water leak, frozen pipe up on the 12th floor, and it trickled down through this building, and there was mold all over the place, and some of it was multicolored, yellow and green and gray and black. And when we got the lab results back, they were almost all the same mold, aspergillus and penicillium, that is common for growing indoors. But it took its color from its, uh, its its environment and its diet. So that was an interesting insight, but it was an amazing project.
1: Did you use sort of like asbestos containment techniques on that one, or did you do something else?
0: Well, we were just involved with the investigation, and then uh, – some of the folks who did do asbestos work came in to do the cleanup, but we were just there to characterize what was going on, and it was a, you know, it was it was an early, early time in the in the mold world, and so things weren't nearly as sophisticated and uh, they, as they are now. But uh, basically, ba- branched off from the asbestos uh, world.
1: And were you doing culturable samples at that time? Then I guess. Yeah, it was mostly culturable at
0: that time. We had what was called, oh my goodness, a BIOS detector, I think it was, which was a uh, handheld spinning pan um, that blew the air samples against um, uh, a little uh, Petri dish collection. And mm-hmm. then you sent it off to the lab. And um, that it got us viable readings. And I didn't get into the non-viable until uh, later into the uh, 70s, uh, mid-70s and later 70s. I mean, uh, later mid-90s and later 90s.
1: Okay. I was, I was thrown for a minute there. I'm glad you corrected that. Now, how about Nosset Environmental? Where, uh, for listeners, I know, where are you located? How many people do you have out in the field?
0: Well, we're located on Cape Cod right at the bend in the elbow between the, the the bicep part of the Cape Cod Arm and heading up toward Provincetown, we're about a mile from the uh, Atlantic Ocean for the office. Um, but uh, the name of the company is taken from the uh, the name of the Indian tribe that was here and greeted the Pilgrims. Hmm. So we've got that, and uh, we actually uh, you know are based out of here, but we uh, do measurements into. The mainland of Massachusetts, and even occasionally get down to Connecticut.
1: How many people do you have out in the field?
0: Well, it's uh, it's me and uh, one part time person, so it's okay. mostly on myself. And when we get pretty busy, we wish we had other people, but I have. To, you can't just bring in somebody off the street. So um, we're we make it, and we have pretty good services. A lot of word of mouth referrals. We're very pleased about that.
1: What. What percent of your work is mold work these days? I just
0: looked that up uh, yesterday in preparation for this show. We do about 70 to 75% of our work in mold and about 10% in asbestos and 10% in radon. And then the rest is a general uh, air quality issues or uh, uh, providing expert witness testimony.
1: Okay. We, we, we wanted, you know, we... I was familiar with your work from just from knowing about you over the years in fact i've I've done training up that way, and people would always mention your air polishing to me, which I want to go into more detail on later and Then I saw the article on condition two settled spores in um the journal and in fact, we put a link up for those of you that don't have it. it's in the chat box but um what what first got you interested in? Uh, Or how did you come up with your own sampling method for condition two settled spores? I guess why
0: and how? Well, I was aware, even though I don't do remediation, I was aware that IICRC in December 2003 issued its professional mold remediation standard and guidance. And so I said, okay, I better look at that to know what the mold guys who do the remediation um, called upon to do. And that's when I learned about the, the actually the three conditions that uh, you have as your trivia question today. So I'll try not to cheat on that. Okay. But um, <laughs> I, I noticed that condition two um, was uh, that the mold remediators under that IICRC S five twenty should clean up um, uh, settled spores and cross-contamination from condition three areas. And having had a background in physics, I said to myself, well, you can't see those little boogers. <laughs> how do you know where they're, they're there? And what's going to be an efficient way to characterize a space for having settled spore contamination? And then I said, well, we could take tape lifts or wipe samples, but then how many do you have to take? And one of the guidelines is you have to take 10% of the surface area of the, of the room that you're interested in. And then I realized that's a lot of samples. And I said, wait a second, why don't we just take a fan to get those settled spores up into the air so that they can be captured on a spore trap? And so we tried that, and we found that in conditions that were relatively clean, if we did a quiet sample and a fan disturbed sample in a relatively clean situation, there wasn't much difference between the two. But then we found places where there was a big difference between the two. And when it approaches a tenfold increase after we disturb with our 12-inch fan, then we're convinced that uh, there is some settled spore contamination. And one of the first places we applied the technique was a pretty broad house, actually, on Martha's Vineyard, and it had four different areas. And we were able to show that um, after the leak in this house years ago that uh, a couple of the areas were pretty good, and they didn't have much settled spore contamination. The difference between the quiet and disturbed air samples were pretty comparable. But then there were two other areas that there was a big difference. And, uh, you know, the aspergillus Penicillium levels went up a factor of 20 or more hmm. uh, when we did our fan uh, disturbance. So we said, okay, remediators got to come back in and focus on those two out of the four areas. And then we did a follow-up post-remediation check and found out that in those two areas we, we had given them guidance, they brought the levels down. So we thought that was pretty good indication that if you stir up the air in the room, you can integrate the impact of the settled spores onto your spore trap samples and then compare them. So that's what we have. It started out by just asking the question, how can you tell they're there because you can't see them? I guess the,
1: you sort of answered this for me, but I want to bring it out because this is one of the things people will tell me in class, you know. Um, why even bother doing any sampling? Why not just treat the area as if it was already contaminated with the settled spores, or the settled spores, conditioned to settled spores?
0: Well, that's a good question, but it depends on your budget and uh, other things. We help decide where the remediation effort should be focused. And if it's an obvious area, we see whether or not the re- remediation area uh, effort has been effective so if you go you know this house i mentioned in spring uh, on uh, martha's vineyard had quite a few rooms and we scattered our sampling across four locations and we found out that uh, two of them needed to have additional effort and so uh, you know it helps you focus instead of just going around you know you make the job bigger you've got to uh, if you go and assume that everything has settled spore contamination, you're going to go throughout the whole house and the budget won't take it. The insurance uh, limits are going to uh, run out. So we help focus in on the areas that really need attention and define the conditions in advance, provide the guidance based on S520 for what should be done, and then if we're requested, we come back in for post-remediation verification. I'm curious, how
1: often do you get requested to come back in?
0: Very often. Okay. Very often. Out here on the Cape, the mold remediation companies also refer folks to us because they follow the S-520 guidance that the remediator really should be independent of the investigator who sets up the scope of work and be independent of the uh, environmental professional who checks on the work. Let's there are folks out here who don't follow that, but the, we're most active with the folks who recognize S five twenty as valid guidance and follow it.
1: Let's talk a little in, in a little more detail about the method itself. So, we're using a, a fan. What what size fan? What speed fan? How do, how do you deal with that?
0: Well, initially, when we didn't quite know what we were doing, we. St- Started to uh, I remember a basement situation where we were trying to check and see whether it was cleaned up enough. And we came in uh, with a small leaf blower. And the place was, you know, white glove clean and everything else. And we went in once and said, no, it's got elevated spores, especially stachybotrys. Got to do it again. And we did it the next time, and we realized that what we were doing is we were blowing the drafts of the leaf blower under the sillboards where you couldn't clean easily. And it was getting stuff that you know, really the it was very difficult to clean. And so we backed off. And, and also, you can't do that in a, in, a, in a living space, an occupied space. So we backed off to using basically 12-inch house fans uh, that would be used in homes during the summertime. And that's more rational. It's what the drafts would be that the homeowner might use uh, or might have present. And now we use just 12-inch fans set on high speed, and we sweep them back and forth, blowing across the horizontal surfaces, uh, walls, ceilings, shelves, whatever is available. And that's what we do. Uh, to do the disturbance and because that disturbance will uh, kick up some big particles we wait you know five minutes or so to let the big particle settle so we don't have uh, debris that's too high for the analysis on the spore traps
1: so with respect to the spore trap you're using uh, I, I forget what type we talked about this a little bit yesterday our You're using the old Cyclex-D, I think it was.
0: We're using Cyclex-D, and I made the evaluation when I saw uh, a report, I think it was out of Cincinnati, on the cut points of various spore traps. And at the time, uh, Cyclex-D had uh, the lowest uh, particle size cut point, and from my... Uh, biophysics training and things like that, I knew that the inhalation of the smaller particles um, was would get stuff deeper into the lungs. So I thought I should characterize the space with the device that would get me to the smaller particles. And so we've been doing that for 10, 12 years now. And I know it's not the most common, but I have a scientific reason for selecting it and using it.
1: And... Let me see if my memory's still what I think it is. Is that the one that it's kind of like um, it's it's a container essentially that you put a slide inside of
0: well, it's like all the other spore traps oh, okay, it's okay with a greased slide that the air is in, the air that is sucked through the chamber, but the air to go out the exit of the chamber has to bend and go around this greased slide. So there's centrifugal force that forces the particles, dust, spores, uh, skin cells, whatever, out of the airstream and to impact this greased slide. They have configured the separation of the slide and the inlet such that the cyclics D captures the smaller sizes, and that's what I liked about it when I evaluated it. Now, maybe some of the newer designs are comparable to the sub one, or the one micron or lower uh, particles. Uh, but uh, that's what I had as information when I made the decision.
1: Okay. I, I know now which one you're talking about. It's it's just, it's similar to the other ones, just like a Zephon or the other Allergenco. It's a plastic, you know, uh, cassette. Right. I was thinking of another. Um, older model that you actually put a a slide inside of a little container and pulled air through. So this is a little different. Uh, That's the
0: Burkhardt sampler. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, All right. Well, let's, let's move on from that a little bit. And first, before we do go too far, how long are you running these samples for and what's the flow rate on the Cyclex D?
0: Cyclex D has a um, 20 liter per minute flow. And we have found that uh, we get good results and uh, a nice sample if we uh, go for 10 minutes. We have very little uh, overloading except for rare circumstances. So we're sampling 200 liters of air in a 10-minute period. And uh, it's been very comfortable performance for us in the past 10 or 12 years. Okay. And...
1: Let's let's go on a little bit about the number of samples you're taking. So how many samples are we taking in an area, you know, adjacent to a Category 3 area, or do you, do you do one in each room in the building? Tell us a little more about how you select the number of samples and location.
0: Okay. What we're focusing on, obviously, is to see if there's indication of cross-contamination or... Uh, with the initial contamination if it's a a site, if it's an area that may have had a leak but there's no visible mold growth and we're curious about whether there's cross-contamination. So in a given room, um, you know, a few hundred square feet even, uh, we'll do one sample. And then if we get a bigger area or if it's uh, sectioned off, for instance, there's one uh, job I'm thinking of right now, that had a pretty big basement and there was a storage area and there was a large finished area that had bedrooms and then a family pool room. So we actually did paired sampling in each of those three general areas because they were representative of uh, different finishes and different impact from the moisture. And, uh, and so we in that case, we got... A total of six samples, three pairs, to see whether there was settled spore contamination. And in those cases, it turned out that uh, we had major settled spore contamination in the uh, finished areas that had been gutted uh, to the studs and sillboards. Hmm. Um, So we had to recommend that uh, the the remediation company that uh, had come down from Boston here on the Cape uh, return... And, uh, and carry out additional remediation. They were satisfied with their work. We came in and did our paired sampling and said, "No, you've left residual settled spore contamination."
1: Hmm. So this was on a clearance for a project.
0: This on a clearance project um, where we were brought in, and each of the each of the pairs had the the disturbed air sample much more than tenfold higher than the quiet sample, 15 to 25, if I recall. But that's, but it was statistically different. It wasn't just in the, the era of sampling and lab analysis. It was a big difference.
1: And you had not done the um, – had you done an investigation prior to the remediation and written the protocol, or was that one where you just called in at the end?
0: We were called in at the end, uh, uh, but we have done um, pre-remediation uh, sampling in, in homes. We just did uh, um, four occupied space paired samples and a basement, and the four occupied uh, uh, paired samples all came out fine. One of the things that's sort of interesting is that if you do the paired sampling, we actually had the lab call us and say, did you label it wrong? Hmm. And what happened was the technician was uh, was sharp, understood that we do paired sampling, and uh, said your disturbed sample came in cleaner than your quiet sample. Hmm. And I said, well, what that shows is that I was blowing cleaner air in, and hence that Room was cleaned quite well by the remediator, Hmm. because the periphery was cleaner than my initial sample in the middle of the room, and so you can feel very comfortable that the remediation job was really fine when your disturbed sample comes in lower than the quiet sample.
1: Do you use a a similar type of uh, sampling when you go into a home? You know, you'll get these situations where you go in to investigate. And you're not seeing any excess moisture anywhere. There aren't any visible signs of mold, or there's not even a you know maybe a little musty odor. But um, you're, you're having trouble locating a source. Do you do the paired sampling in those situations too?
0: Usually, well, it depends again on the budget. Because if you do two samples, you've got to have two lab analyses. Mm-hmm. The question you're asking, Joe, is often raised if we have tenants who are complaining that there's a mold and an irritation in their apartments or whatever they're renting. And what we'll do is come in and do what we call worst case sampling, where we do only the disturbed sampling. And that way we can see what the most stirred up levels of spores are in the inhalable environment Hmm. and frankly our experience has been that about 85 95 percent of the time we have complaints about mold in a space that isn't damp and doesn't have uh, indications of the recent leaks and doesn't have moldy odors uh, that uh, it comes out that the disturbed sample it's like a, a, what a quiet sample would be in a clean space.
1: Hmm. So that often you're getting,
0: that's pretty interesting that
1: um, you're finding oftentimes the, the complaints are probably something else,
0: not mold? Uh, yeah, maybe it's psychological. Maybe it's disgruntlement with the landlord. Um, you never know. I mean, we always accept that these things Tenant complaints have credibility. And we will investigate with a moisture meter and relative humidity. And we will, you know, we will go all around and then we'll say, okay, now where do you think you feel the most irritation? And then we will do worst case sampling, disturbed sampling in that particular area they they highlight. Um, but we don't we don't dismiss it. But I'm telling you that you know maybe 90 plus percent of the time we have a mold complaint from a tenant. Our worst-case sampling shows no elevated spore levels.
1: Hmm. All right, I've got one more question before we break for halftime here. Uh, what about mechanical systems and, and duct work? Um, that's oftentimes another area that it's difficult to determine whether it's got condition two settled spores or not, and uh, or even like. Whether there's a, a problem there in the beginning, like you just mentioned, you know, where you come in and a tenant has complaints, etc. Do you have any specific ways that are or, or different ways from the standard ways people evaluate those? Um, anything different with respect to HVAC systems?
0: Well, basically, what we do, and I think probably a lot of people do this, is that if there's suspicion of mold contamination in the ductwork, and they want to have Some measure uh, we can do a measurement in front of the duct while things are quiet uh, while the system is off, Mm -hmm. Uh, fan is off in essence, and then uh, do a measurement at a supply duct uh, after the system is turned on. And we've done that several times, but the the f- fan velocity in the ducts really doesn't pick up those spores uh, that may have been settled there, and so we we rarely get um, uh, a, a major difference unless there is contamination on the uh, the coils and the uh, the. the the immediate area uh, following uh, where a, a humidifier may be, where humidification takes place. Okay. It's, it's pretty hard to see the difference. So in essence,
1: you're kind of doing disturbed sampling there as well. You're doing one without the the fan blower on and one with it on.
0: That is correct. <laughs> and, but it's not our active, you know, handheld fan being swooped around. It's taking advantage of the system. And actually, if, if the HVAC system has been on during a leak event and when there has been condition three contamination, we always say that, you know, during the remediation, seal off all the duct work and then come in as the final step, do NADCA procedures to clean the duct professionally. And, um, and that way, you know, you catch up on it.
1: Okay. When we come back, I'd like to go into a little more about what your clearance criteria is on a mold remediation project. But before we do that, we'll be back in about 90 seconds with Dr. Bill Vaughn. We're talking about mold remediation and assessment issues. And we've got to thank our sponsors before we continue. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
2: The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training. Certification, standards, and events. Their website is prsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing
1: Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
2: Legends in Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors, over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. That's johndon.com. Clean Facts,
1: the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net.
1: And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us.
2: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Bill Vaughn from uh, up on the Cape, Cape Cod, Nauset, uh, Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Vaughn, <laughs> excuse me. We were talking about uh, a little bit about clearance, and and I'm curious, what what type of clearance criteria do you require on a mold remediation project? Your company is. Um, doing the post-remediation verification on?
0: Well, we have uh, struggled with this, and um, I've attended several of the IAQA annual meetings and had presentations by folks who uh, have done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of samples, and they have categorized things as to whether or not there is a problem home, uh, a medical condition, a complaint, and I've looked at the literature that's out there, and uh, I'm always looking for, for more reports and more data. But the pattern that I saw said that complaints, uh, health complaints or irritation complaints seemed to increase as people recorded these uh, re- comparisons of spore trap samples to, uh, to the complaints that in the 1,000 to 2,000 uh, spores per cubic meter, primarily aspergillus penicillium, but you could use total spores as well, in the range of 1,000 to 2,000, as you went above that, you had more complaints. As you went below that range, uh, you had fewer complaints. And so based on that information, and we put it up on our website, um, we've decided that our cl- our clearance uh, criteria, our goal should be a thousand uh, spores per cubic meter of Aspergillus penicillium because those are the primary indoor molds that grow in response to moisture. And that's that's our focus. And we also uh, consider the fact that some people are more sensitive and sensitized. And so, uh, and talked with an allergist down in Connecticut, and he says, well, I've got patients who are sensitive to below the near 500 and lower. So if we know that an occupant is sensitized, we will then use the 500 spores per cubic meter um, as the clearance criteria for that house. And we call it our informal guideline because we know that there aren't any standards. But I tried to look at what's out there that indicates problems, and that's what I have come up with. Um, we also are a little bit, uh, well, I should stop at that point.
1: Oh, well, I'm curious because a lot of people, well, first of all, I assume you also require that, you know, a thorough visual inspection, that the odors are gone, uh, that the scope of work was completed, the area is back to the dry standard, things like that.
0: That's correct. We do go in with the moisture meter, make sure that things are uh, brought back down on if any remaining drywall is there because it was above an impact area, uh, then uh, we'll check on that. We'll check on the, um, the, the studs, remaining studs, sillboards, boards, subflooring, and, uh, and then we'll recommend whether there's additional drying totally separate from uh, the mold issues. And so we do check it out for uh, evidence of adequate cleaning.
1: Do you do anything on on what some people refer to as indicator species, Your, your stachybotrys, your ketomiums,
0: things like that? Okay. The indicator species that we, of course, most heavily depend on are Aspergillus penicillium because certainly in our New England area, if there's dampness, those are the guys that are the primary, you know, colonizers Um, when it comes to things like stachybotrys we're aware of the fact that stachybotrys colonies are slime molds and so that if you've got an ongoing leak and you've recently discovered a leak you probably aren't going to get any stachybotrys in the air because the surface tension of the water will hold the spores in place as you control the leak and the colony dries out that's when you're going to have stachybotra spores in the air. And I think we have a little bit of an interesting experience over the years. Uh, several years ago, when I was when I took an outdoor control sample, I got two stachy spores in the outdoor air. And it's around outdoors, so why shouldn't I get it occasionally? Mm-hmm. Um, and that convinced me that you know a couple of stacky spores aren't necessarily a problem. So what we have uh, set up is that while we have that 500 or 1,000 Aspergillus penicillium spores as uh, our criteria, we say that we're going to be satisfied with, and that that's 500 or 1,000 spores per cubic meter for the concentration. For aspergillus penicillium. When it comes to the indicator spore for more extended wetness, sacchibatris, we look at the individual spore count, and if we're single digits, one through nine, we're not sensing that as a real signal of major contamination or residual contamination. And usually the remediators out here who follow our air polishing protocol that we'll get into, um, they bring down uh, any initial uh, dachybotrys spore levels well down uh, to either non-detect or only one or two spore spore counts, absolute spore counts. Now we did have a situation several years ago where there was a, a condominium that had spore counts for Stachybotrys above 500 and above 1,000. Woo! So that, we knew, really needed to have a lot of attention. We were in on the baseline for that one. Um, But we're not uh, petrified, and we don't overreact to small, absolute uh, counts of Stachybotrys spores, because they're out there. And so we we focus really more on the Aspergillus penicillium by concentration, and but that's but part of our criteria is to bring the Stachybotrys count down to single digits.
1: And you mean single digits in in the raw count, as some refer raw to raw count? Okay,
0: that's in the raw count.
1: All right. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad, glad we talked about that. I've got a, a project going right now that's very similar, actually, and, and I think our um, agreed-upon levels on this particular project were very similar to what you're talking about. So that's, it's interesting that we have uh, a similar kind of uh, take on that. Now, the other thing we really wanted to talk to you about, I think, is a, uh, an excellent technique that you've been teaching for years and that you've been requiring i think people to use on your mold remediation projects it's what you refer, refer to as air polishing and i think a lot of people out there are used to you know using air filtration devices to try and help clean the air and um you know using them as what they call scrubbers but you have a little different take on how you require air polishing and i'd like you to describe that for our listeners if you
0: would Sure, all of this is linked to the whole idea that remote mediators have really been ignoring condition two settled spores for years. you know if they see it and they can take out the drywall and pull out the pull out the contaminated areas that's easy they do that, but it's the condition two settled spores and it it builds on this concept of air polishing builds on the um, fact that i said gee you got in order to determine if a room has settled spores you should mobilize them up into the air so you can sample them so the concept of air polishing recognizes the fact that spores are particles and they're not like water vapor i've written a, I've given a talk and it's at our website it's called and it's a sidebar as a matter of fact to the iicrc journal article that says Air scrubbers are not dehumidifiers. So what? Okay. And and the point is that an air scrubber is if it's just sitting there by itself, in the course of you know five to eight hours, almost all the particles uh, will have settled out. Maybe some of the finer ones may be suspended longer, but you're not really cleaning the air. And I know of some people who claim, oh, we'll set it up for 48, 72 hours and you're clean. We ran into a situation just in the last month and a half where a remediator set an air scrubber on the second floor, told the people to open their closet doors and their drawers and let the uh, air scrubber on the second floor operate for three or four days and it would clean up the house. I'm sorry. It wouldn't be effective after the first couple of hours. So, recognizing that and bridging, uh, building a little bit more on the concept of... Uh, before I even thought of air polishing, I knew that there was something well, air washing out there which involved periodic use of a leaf blower. We take air polishing one step further, and that's where we try to create a lot of turbulence. I have the remediators create a lot of a tur- turbulence in the area they're remediating, maybe a couple of air scrubbers if it's a big enough space, but multiple oscillating fans sweeping back and forth. They can be up on a stand, they can be on the floor, various surfaces, and then coming in periodically with a leaf blower. What you're doing then is you're kicking those spores up into the air and keeping them there with the oscillating fans so they have a chance to have the spore-laden air move through the air scrubber and be effective. And we have found that you know, folks who, co- who follow our protocol, which says you come back periodically, relocate the orientation of the drafts from the oscillating fans, twist, turn, relocate the air scrubbers so that their exhaust um, goes into different corners, um, and then come in periodically on top of all that, just a couple times with a leaf blower you're getting it all suspended, and we have some very, very good results following this air polishing technique. And the the the, the remediation project I was telling you about, where there, uh, where we were we came in and we came in twice after telling this remediation company uh, out of Boston uh, how to do air polishing, and they didn't do the oscillating fan part of it and they didn't do the periodic leaf blowing, and they didn't change things much because they were dislodging spores up in the joists uh, in the corners. And I like to challenge people to say, okay, you know, they say, why do you need to do all this? And I think, hey, let's look at this. If you have one of, the, one of the snail carpet fans and you have a leaf clutter in your driveway, you put that snail fan in the middle of your driveway and you blow or you put a leaf blower and set it up to blow. You're going to clean out the leaves in front of it, but that's only going to be a narrow path. And you're going to have leaves or spores settle to the left and behind uh, that, that device. So why not really mix it up? It doesn't take that much extra effort, but by golly, it does a very good job. And leaf Uh, A leaf blowing, oscillating fan combination with reorienting all those directions makes uh, an air scrubber then effective. An air scrubber by itself is not like a dehumidifier. You see, a dehumidifier takes advantage of the fact that water has vapor pressure. Spores don't. So as a dehumidifier operates, water evaporates up into the air where it then can be circulated by the fan on the dehumidifier to the chilled plates and condense out and be removed. Spores need to be kicked into the air. Hence, an air scrubber is not a dehumidifier.
1: And I'm curious, with respect to um, different types of containment setups, you mentioned an air scrubber in a room. Have you seen the same types of results when you have just a negative air machine in a room and you're creating a negative pressure or would you have both a negative pressure and an air scrubber have you seen differences in your numbers based on those different configurations
0: if they are operating on their own an air scrubber or a negative air machine will not remove the spores unless you kick them into the air by other drafts oscillating fans and also, and I know that there's a big debate on negative air uh, machines and NAMs as to whether they should be operated during a PRV uh, examination. And I'm in the camp that says, once you're done with your remediation and you're, you say it's ready for verification, you shut things down. Turn off the negative air machine, seal seal things up, and then operate it as an air scrubber because then you've got that space under the pressure conditions that are going to be extant when you have people come in when the containment is removed if you are asking me to come in to do post remediation verification with a negative air machine on one thing is that's not typical of the occupied space when you're done. The other thing is that you're drawing air in from cavities and spaces that you were not contracted to clean. Mm-hmm. So you're complicating the verification process. So I say turn off the negative air machines and then mobilize that device as an air scrubber combining oscillating fans, and a leaf blower, mixing them up as often as you can.
1: And then you take your samples with those still running, or do you shut them down prior to the final sampling?
0: They should be shut down several hours, perhaps 8 to 12 hours beforehand, because we want it again, to be representative of what supposedly the occupied space will be once you remove the containment. Okay. Well, that's
1: interesting. I'm glad we got a a chance to go into some more detail on, um, you know, on how how you recommend people perform mold remediation projects and and assessment of mold remediation projects. I'm wondering if you have any other tips for mold remediation contractors or consultants, either one, with respect to uh, either assessment or remediation of indoor
0: environments. Well, I think the key thing, and it's part of what I – Brought to the thought processes here is that you've got to think about the physics, the biology of what's going on. And the physics says for remediation and air scrubbers, you've got to realize the physics says that particles don't go into the air on their own. Water, because it has vapor pressure, does. So you can dry, but you can't clean particles out of the air. By the longer operation of a device, um, and uh, I think the other thing that uh, that comes to mind is uh, when we're dealing with the possibility of uh of wall cavities, for instance, uh, we will take uh, wall cavity samples. And I've been I was burned in the early days trying to take wall cavity samples with a spore trap, and I decided at that time that wait a second, that debris is just messing me up all the time. And there are all sorts of little gimmicks you can have to try to reduce the debris reading on the spore trap. I decided that maybe what we should do is deal with viable spores. Because what you're thinking of, if you think about it, the spores in a wall cavity are laying there and there's not much drafts to mobilize them into the air, similar to the situation with an air scrubber in a room with no oscillating fans. So maybe what you should do is see what could be growing in there or capable of growing and disturb during your sampling so we do a uh, bunch of hole in we gather a filter sample um, on a cassette while you know we're, while we're periodically thumping with a rubber mallet on the surrounding uh, drywall and uh, then we're mobilizing the sp- that may be viable and checking them by culturing what's caught on the filter. And we found that's a reasonably good indication of things. The biggest problem is which spore in which uh, stud bay do you select, and we usually use moisture meter readings to do that. But that's, again, recognizing the fact that spores in a wall aren't going to get out unless you're ripping that wall apart. So they're going to lay there, but if there's contamination that could grow and increase Maybe you want to characterize that, and then that's uh, when we disturb the wall cavity, take the filter sample, culture it, and see if viable spores are in excess compared to a dry control spot.
1: And with respect to the, the sampling in the wall cavity, are you using like a, um, an asbestos cassette, an MCE, what is a 0.8 pore size cassette?
0: Yeah, we use actually a a polycarbonate uh, filter with a 0.4 spore size. Okay. And then that's washed, and we tell them to analyze it as an air sample. You know, we've taken 100 liters of air. So report the results in colony-forming units per cubic meter. Hmm. What's comparable to what a spore trap might be in a room. I'm curious,
1: you, I know that for a while now you've been working on the, um, I, what was the IAQA IESO uh, residential mold standard, and I left my notes with the uh, full name, maybe you can help me with that, and that is now an ASHRAE standard, as I understand it, or has been moved over to ASHRAE. Can you tell listeners how that's coming along?
0: Well, we've been working on it for a hell of a long time, <laughs> coming up on almost eight years since the first meeting, and it's the goal is to create, and this is its sort of formal name, it may change by the time things get all wrapped up, the Initial Residential Mold Assessment Standard, I-R-M-A-S. And the idea was to give folks guidance about all the things you got to look for, and and evaluate when you come in to a home. A lot of folks are kind of coming into the to this world without much experience, physically, biologically, about what's going on. What's the role of moisture? Uh, how does how do microorganisms respond to moisture? Where do you look, uh, etc. And so we've got guidance for people to come in and do that initial assessment. Where it is is it's installed for seven or eight months now in this transition where there's been the merger with IAQA and uh, ASHRAE. And now our effort is under the ASHRAE standard group and they have different and a little bit more stringent uh, requirements for wording Um, and, for the standards that they have for their engineers. And so we're working through helping to understand what is going to be acceptable now to ASHRAE because it will come out as an ASHRAE document um, and still acceptable to us, the folks who have been on the writing group for this. I don't know when it's going to free up. Uh, we are supposed to have some meetings resume in May. And we'll see what comes out. It may not come out as a standard. It may come out more as a guidance document. Hmm. But I feel it's really important to have people understand all the things you have to look for, and to realize that some stuff may be cosmetic and not have any release of spores and stuff. You know, areas may have release of spores and have a health impact, and not have people going off half cock and realizing again the independence of the person who does the assessment versus and has the credentials to do
1: that versus the remediators you know in in our discussion today obviously at least i get the impression you're an advocate for taking samples on on at least mold remediation projects and maybe on indoor air quality projects in general I just got back from the Northeast Indoor Air Quality and Energy Conference, and they had a debate there between the people that felt sampling was appropriate on mold projects and other IAQ projects, and others that thought it was unnecessary. And it was a good give and take, and um, you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of interesting comments. And I'm just curious, you know, you you're, you appear to be an advocate for sampling. What would you say to those who who advocate that we don't need to take? Samples on mold remediation projects and that we are overdoing it and that the money would be better spent say on doing more remediation or uh, okay. more, doing more to you know, make sure the building's waterproofed
0: Okay um, very good question and I actually Avoid a lot of sampling where I could take baseline samples If there's moisture if there's odor if there's an indication of mold contamination we will develop a, uh, a an SOP and a protocol uh, for cleaning up the situation. We, if you see any mold growth, you you know you don't need to sample. You know it has to be removed, physically removed under IICRC. Where we differ with people, or I guess our approach is it's scientifically based. We have to have a hypothesis that says our sampling will help answer a question. If there is about elevated contamination in this area, and of course, condition two is something that you can't see. So, if it's a potential condition two situation, then our hypothesis-driven sampling will be something like there are there is excessive uh, settled spore contamination in this place, um, which needs to be addressed by air sampling. And then we take our samples to address that hypothesis. We don't just take samples. Okay, I think that's fair
1: enough. And and one other quick question, actually two before we go. Um, do you see any other hot topics on the horizon, indoor air quality topics, for people to keep an eye on?
0: Um, not really. Uh a couple of things that come up periodically but they haven't reached the hot button level i think we should just keep attuned to what comes out of research that says hey maybe you ought to consider fiberglass fibers more maybe you ought to consider cellulose fibers from the blown-in insulation more Uh, keep track of that
1: okay fair enough and before we go um you know dr vaughn before we go we always like to say give you the last word is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add you'd like to get listeners to hear
0: Well, I think the key thing is be open-minded, be aware of the physical and biological principles, and if you want to have a summary of some of them, look at our website, because it's an educational location as well, nausetenvironmental.com, and you'll see uh, pieces that I have written, that we have written, and examples of our reports and uh, the air polishing protocols.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a a real pleasure. I'm glad we got a chance to spend some time and talk and uh, get a little detail on, put a little meat on the bones here with respect to uh, condition two sampling and then air polishing. And I look forward to seeing you again in the near future.
0: You bet. Next uh, IAQA meeting in Vegas, I guess.
1: You got it. (laughs) I'll be there, and I'm sure you will too. Hopefully we'll run into each other before then. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. William Bill Vaughn out of Nauset, Massachusetts, up on the Cape. Uh, great uh, great show, very enjoyable, a lot of good detail on science. Um, thanks, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man. He'll do the blog, get it out here on Sunday. Uh, my engineer, John, you got to have faith. Oh, by the way, next week we're – I. I did seven different interviews, shorter interviews, at the Northeast IAQ uh, Conference, IAQ and Energy Conference. Had some some really good people, uh, Paula Shank from the University of Connecticut, uh, we had Sam Rashkin, we had uh, Jack Springston, we you know, got about six or seven different guests, and next week we're going to replay that back with some commentary in between. It might take me two shows to get that done, but uh, we'll we'll play with it a little bit here, John and I, once we get the clips. So thanks again to uh, this week's guest, to my co-host, to my engineer, and, of course, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.